Looking at our world from a theological perspective, this is the Theology Central Podcast, making Theology Central. Good evening, everyone. It is Thursday, June the 1st, 2023. It is currently 7.10 p.m. Central Time, and I'm coming to you live from the Theology Central studio located right here in Abilene, Texas. Now, I have been a Christian all of my adult life. I became a Christian as a teenager, so I have been a Christian for most of my life. Well, definitely the majority of my life, I have lived as a Christian. But I'm going to confess something. A lot of you are not going to like this confession. A lot of you will be like, well, that's your fault. You should just get over it. You know, the problem is on you, but... You know, you can, you can say that to me if you would like. I don't think it's really going to be uh, very encouraging or helpful, but feel free to attack me if you, if you need to. But I'm just going to be full transparency. I'm just going to be honest with you. Every week, every month, every year as a Christian, I become more and more disillusioned, discouraged, frustrated, disappointed, and depressed with Christianity. I'm just going to be honest with you. And, and I know some of you are screaming, no, no, no. You should be disappointed and discouraged with yourself. I, I Look, I've got plenty of reasons to be disappointed, discouraged, frustrated, and irritated with myself. So I would not even argue against that. But just stay with me and let me try to explain, all right? Every week, every month, every year, the longer I'm a Christian, the more I become discouraged, depressed, disillusioned, frustrated, and just, to be honest with you, just tired of, of of so much of Christianity. Now, now you may understand, you may not, but just, just listen to me, all right? Just, just before you st- start emailing, just try to hear me out. You see, if I took my Christianity and in a sense withdrew from the Christian world, right? I didn't talk to Christians. I didn't go to church. I didn't engage Christians in, in conversation about doctrine, theology, the Bible. And in a sense, I just tried to live my Christian life out really in isolation. What I mean by that is I just, I take my Bible. I read it. I study it. Yes. I, you know, I, I look at commentaries. I look at articles. I listen to sermons, but I, I just, I'm doing it on my own. I'm not really talking to anyone. Now, yes, I would understand that even doing that, there would be a little bit of frustration because, of course, I could get 10 commentaries, come up with 30 different interpretations. I could listen to 20 sermons, get 50 different interpretations of the Bible. I would realize that nobody agrees on anything, and all it is is disagreement, disagreement, disagreement. I would still see that, but it wouldn't have the same impact on me because, well, I'd be just, you know, oh, this commentary is different from that commentary. So what? It doesn't have the same emotional impact, right? It doesn't, it doesn't lead to the same frustration. So if I lived, if I removed my Christianity and kind of lived in isolation from other Christians, I didn't talk to other Christians, didn't engage other Christians, clearly don't turn on a microphone and do a, a, a Christian podcast and clearly don't stand behind a pulpit. If I could have avoided all of, if I could avoid all of that, I think my disillusionment, my discouragement, my frustration, my depression with Christianity would be at a minimum, right? It would, it would maybe, there would still be some things that frustrate me, but it would not be near as bad. I would, I would be obviously much more frustrated and disillusioned and discouraged and depressed about myself. I still am, but Christianity at times rivals it. And here is the reason why. 
As soon as you leave your isolation and you decide to engage in what many you know Christians love the buzzword community, you start talking to other Christians, you start talking about the Bible or theology or anything, you will find yourself inevitably in some kind of disagreement. You'll say, well, this passage, nope, th- you know, nope, nope, nope. That passage means this. You'll immediately get disagreements. You'll get arguments. And so at some point, at, at some point, you just get frustrated. Like, why? What's even the point of talking to another Christian? They, I say A, they're going to immediately say B. You turn on the microphone and you try to do a Christian podcast where your audience is going to be predominantly Christians and you'll get emails going, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong. And you're just like, for crying out loud, it never ends. And try being a pastor. You stand behind the pulpit and sooner or later, someone in the church is going to get mad, going to start disagreeing with you, telling you you're wrong. Doesn't matter how much you study. Doesn't matter how many degrees you have. They're going to leave. And at some point, you're just like, what? Nobody can agree on anything. And whenever I say that, people email me and go, that's not true. Let me just remind you, Christians, we don't agree on baptism. We don't agree on the Lord's Supper. We don't agree on the church structure. We don't even agree on the definition of the word repentance. We don't agree on salvation. We don't literally agree on anything. It's it's literally maddening how frustrating it can be. And so sometimes, I, I, I mean, I know this to be a fact. But it's just so frustrating that every time you open the Bible and you say anything, you're always going to get some counter argument. And I, on one hand, I guess when I was a younger Christian, I would be like, yeah, let's fight. Let's argue. But that just leads to arrogance. And it's just at some point, it just it's futility. It's like, you know. You're just going to argue constantly. And it's like, at some point, I just grew tired of it. I'm like, I don't care anymore. Just believe whatever you want. I'm tired of fighting about it. But it can still be frustrating, right? Because you're like, hey, let's study this. And the next thing you know, there's disagreement. I don't know. Does it bother you? Is, am I the only one bothered by that? Am, am, am I the only one who grow tired of it, frustrated with it, exhausted by it? you just like, I'm just so tired, completely just mentally just worn down by it. It's just like you put two Christians together and just let's start talking. It's almost inevitably disagreement will arise. And it's just like, it's just why? It's just crazy. So I wasn't shocked. I wasn't surprised, obviously, when we started our study in the book of Jeremiah, that sooner or later, something was going to lead to disagreement and you know, I, I I knew it. I knew it. And if not just disagreement, that there would be like, well, there's this completely different way of looking at it. This, you know, in other words, if you look at it that way, you're wrong. This is the other way you should look at it. I knew that there would be, there's going to be lots of that in Jeremiah, right? Especially when we get to the covenant and, 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 and different passages. What is that Israel? Is that the church? I know there's going to be disagreement. So on one hand, I'm prepared for it, but it's just like, we didn't even make it that far, right? I mean, We've done some introductory lessons. Oh, I, we've done a little bit of work in chapter one. Nothing too controversial, controversial, right? Nothing, nothing too, you know, I even gave everyone, you know, a, a little bit of homework. I think everything was pretty, pretty good, but I get an email. Now, the email, to be fair, is not an attacking kind of email. It's actually an email more, I mean, they state something in a very dogmatic way, like, no, this is the right way. Any other way is the wrong way. 
But that, I mean, that's what Christians do. I mean, don't we always state, Christians always do that. My interpretation is right. Your interpretation is wrong. This is the way it is. That is wrong. Everything is very dogmatic in the Christian world. We understand that. But they were very kind. They were very nice. And so there was a part of me that's like, do I even want to get into this? Do I even want to even approach this subject? Do I even want to go there, right? Um, because the goal of studying Jeremiah really is more for trying to, you know, some spiritual benefit. That, that's what, remember, I emphasize that. I emphasize that. So, um, but then at the same time, I'm like, I can't ignore this. One, because I got the email. And two, because this would be a great opportunity for those participating in the Bible study exercise to engage in a, a small research project. I don't want you to spend too much time on it, but I want you to just start searching, read a number of articles and see if you can establish if there's a consensus or if there is no consensus. Now, if there's no consensus on this subject, well, then that tells you something, right? Once again, that means there's no agreement. And if there is consensus, is the consensus in agreement with the email or is the email in disagreement with the consensus? And what does that mean? And should it even matter to you? When you pick up your Bible, you buy a Bible, right? King James, I, we, we could get into, I know, even that can be controversial, right? You don't buy a King James, the King James, only people will attack you. Okay, you buy this Bible, people say, no, that's using a dynamic equivalence and translation, that's wrong. No, 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 that's using a word, a word for word. And then everyone has their opinions. And so even that can be controversial. Even that can be controversial for crying out loud. In other words, within the, the realm of Christianity, we don't even really agree on what Bible you can use. But did you know that some may say, wait a minute, you're reading the Old Testament, but it's based off the wrong manuscripts. You should not be reading that Bible because that's using this manuscripts when you should be reading the Old Testament from these manuscripts. Did, did you know that that was a controversy? Well, it is. But which one is right and how should we view it? Now, I just want the, I don't want this to distract you from your homework on Jeremiah, but I want you to be aware of this controversy so that you can look into it for yourself. I'm not, I'm not going to be very dogmatic here. I'm just going to offer a little bit of information, a little bit of information, right? Just so that you to try to get you started, but I want you to see it for yourself. I want you to just kind of, I, I just, I don't want you to go like deep. I don't want you to like, you know, Go scuba diving for this. I don't, I, I just want you to kind of snorkeling. I just want you to just a little bit under the water, but not too far under the water. Just kind of look down there and go, Oh, wow. There's a lot of controversy about this. And then the next time you hear about it, you'll be at least somewhat prepared. And then I'm doing my job trying to equip you. So you're no longer tossed to and fro with every wind of doctrine. Now, ultimately, that's your local church's job to do that. But a lot of times Christians are not being equipped. So if I can do any helping to equip, then I will do what I can't. But I want you at least to be aware of this controversy. So let me make it very clear to the person who emailed this. I am appreciative of, right? I mean, I'm a little frustrated and irritated, like, oh, we're just into Jeremiah. And I'm like, hey, guys, let's study Jeremiah for our spiritual benefit, for spiritual growth. And now I got to deal with this big, it's almost like an academic argument, things that we talked about in seminary, things we talked about in Bible college. And I'm like, 
But but the average Christian probably doesn't even know about these arguments, but they at least need to be aware of them. So when they stumble upon them, then they're not tossed to and fro with every wind of doctrine. So on one hand, I'm appreciative that they did email it. On the other hand, I'm like, can't we talk about, I don't know. Uh, could we talk about Jeremiah 116 and I will utter my judgments against them, touching all their wickedness who have forsaken me, have burned incense unto other gods and have worshiped the works of their own hands and deal with maybe some of the issues I talked about in relationship to idolatry last night in the latest episode on our study of Jeremiah. Maybe we could talk about my possible explanation of the vision of the, of the almond tree. Right. Like, I mean, like to me, I think I gave some very specific textual things that we could dig into. Right. But it, it so I don't want to completely derail our study, but I at least want to bring this to everyone's attention. So, again, I am grateful for the person who emailed me. Yeah, I'm a little like, man, I wish we could be talking about this other stuff, but that's OK. That's OK. That's OK. This needs to be at least brought to everyone's attention. Now, I'm going to place this in everyone's capable hands to see what you can find. All right. So this is just a, this is a special research project. I don't want you going full blown in. I don't want you writing a doctrinal thesis on it. I don't want you writing paragraphs on it. I want you to just survey the landscape of material out there on this subject and see if you can find any consensus or is it just utter madness? And if it's just utter madness, what does it mean for the average person sitting in the pew? Like sometimes you have to ask yourself, like, how much of the, how many of these really certain of, of these issues, how much do you bring these to the church and how much of this do you, like, I, you know, I don't know. Like, I, you always have to try to figure out exactly what to do and how to handle this. But here we go. I'm going to unplug my iPad here and we're going to dig into this. Here is the email I received. Here's the email I received. Okay. Uh, the email was sent... When was the email sent? The email was sent on May the 31st at 11.44 p.m. Right? Here is what they write. You must not forget that the Masoretic text is a counterfeit. Now, the Masoretic text. So here's what we're going to have. They're getting ready to bring up the, we'll call it the, uh, the controversy between should we be using in our, he in, in our, in our Bibles when we read the Old Testament, uh, uh, an Old Testament based on the Masoretic text, or should we be reading an Old Testament based off the Septuagint? All right. In other words, are you Septuagint? Are you Masoretic? And that's, that's the best way to explain this. This person's going to go into far more detail and I'm going to read some of it. So when you read your Old Testament, are you like, wait a minute, is this the Masoretic or is this the Septuagint? Now, you, when you, even in, now we've talked about this and we've talked about some of these issues a lot if you've listened to all of my podcast and all of my teaching, because it raises lots of questions. Because sometimes in the New Testament, when they quote the Old Testament, they're not quoting the Masoretic text, they're quoting the Septuagint. Right. And you're like, well, wait a minute. So then should I, should I be Septuagint only or should I be Masoretic? And why are they quoting the Septuagint? And sometimes the Septuagint is different from the Masoretic. That, I mean, these are, they, we talked a little bit about this in regards to Jeremiah, I think, 17.9. I think we, I think it was Jeremiah 17.9. Let me look at it. They're radically different between the Septuagint and the Masoretic. Uh, uh, Jeremiah 17, 9. Yeah, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked who can know it. And we've got a mate, we've got a difference between the two texts. 
Right? This raises serious questions and, and people have to try to figure these things out. So they asked, so according to them, that they say this in a dogmatic way, you must forget, you must not forget that the Masoretic Hebrew text is a counterfeit and an attempt by the unregenerate Jew to recreate the ancient Hebrew canon, which perished in the AD 70 destruction of the temple. So according to them, the Masoretic text is a counterfeit created by, uh, was an attempt by unregenerate Jews to recreate the ancient Hebrew canon. That, that's their words. I, 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 they, they separate the word Hebrew canon, obviously, when they were te- uh, typing it out. But you get it. So according to the, now they state, that's stated dogmatically. That's not stated as a hypothesis. That's not stated as a theory. That's not stated as just their, the, that's the, their dogmatic assertion. The Masoretic text is a, is a counterfeit. It's a counterfeit attempt by unregenerate Jews to put to uh, recreate the ancient Hebrew canon. That, that's that's their claim. During the epoch of the incarnation, the text of scripture, which commonly was used by the Rome remnant of Israel, corresponds to the Septuagint. Jesus and the apostles cited from the Septuagint and most of the, of the many citations of the scripture recorded in the gospel accounts and the epistles agree with the reading of the extant manuscripts of the Septuagint. By their citations, Jesus and the apostles certified the Septuagint as the official canon of scripture, which corresponds with the AD 70 destruction of the Hebrew manuscripts. So it makes sense to check the sequence of the extant of Greek manuscripts of Jeremiah. If I, re- if I recall correctly, there is more than one. So don't go to the Hebrew. And for those who don't know, the Septuagint was the Greek translation of the Hebrew text. Okay. So, so in this particular case, there was like, you need to look at the Greek manuscripts of Jeremiah, not the Hebrew manuscripts. All right. Now that's the argument. So here's what I want you to do. All right. I'm going to just, I'm just going to read from one source quickly, right? Because I had to, I, I, I was going to dig out, you know, textbooks and things I've learned in Bible college and seminaries. Um, but I, I found just one article just to get you started, just to show you. But here's what you need to do. You need to kind of do some study on the history of the Masoretic text, the history of the Septuagint. And then you can probably do some Google searching on the Masoretic versus the Septuagint and see, does everyone say the Masoretic is a counterfeit? It's a counterfeit. Don't use it. Only use the Septuagint. Or are you going to find others going, well, like, just, just do a little bit of re, I just want you to do a little bit of reading. Now, and, and just please check the sources that you're citing and, and the sources that you're looking at, right? If it's just like, you know, conspiracies, UFOs, and the Masoretic text, you know, like, okay, then, you know, you, you may want to, you may want to look on, you know, look a little further. But do some research, look, look at some things and just see what you come up with and see what, how this impacts your under, your, your reading of Jeremiah moving forward. Are you going to be like, Oh, no, I need an, I need a English translation based off the Septuagint. That's what I need. That's what I am not going to read any, anymore. If the Bible is based on the Masoretic text, I am not going to use it. I want you to just do it. Just, just a, a, I don't want you to get so lost. 
you know, I don't want you to get so into the weeds that you, you, you we miss the entire, uh, you know, I don't want you to get so lost in the trees that you miss the forest there. Is that is that a better way of explaining it? I don't want you just to get so into the weeds that we miss Jeremiah. I want us to read Jeremiah. No, yes, understand what the text means, what it says, but to understand how it can impact us spiritually. So I'm very grateful for the email. I mean, because I mean, someone's engaged, someone is paying attention. So I'm, I'm very grateful. And I, 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 I hope that, that by doing this, a lot of you and I will become more familiar with this controversy and see where you, which side you fall on. Now, I'm going to read from one source, but we'll start here. Are you familiar with this place? Qumran. 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 Are you familiar with that? Qumran. Well, you may not be familiar with Qumran, but you may be familiar with some things that were discovered in that area. They're known as the Dead Sea Scrolls. Right? So if you're not familiar with Qumran, uh, Qumran, yeah, if I can say it correctly, Qumran, I have to look at it. If I don't look, if I don't look at it, I'll say it incorrectly. It, you, you may not be familiar with Qumran, but you're probably familiar with the Dead Sea Scrolls. All right. So here we go. It, the, the 2022. So last year, 2022 marks this, marked the 75 years since the Dead Sea Scrolls were, were discovered or found. They were hidden for 2,000 years, and they began to be uncovered between 1947 and 1956. Roughly 900 manuscripts, all right? So so, uh, so the, the year 2022 marks 75 years since the Dead Sea Scrolls started to become uncovered. Between 1947 and 1956, r- roughly 900 manuscripts dated between 250 B.C. to A.D. 68. They were discovered in 11 caves around Qumran along with the northwestern shore of the Dead Sea. During the 1950s and the 1960s, ancient scrolls were also found in other locations. I'm not going to go through all the other locations, but they were also found. Among the manuscripts from Qumran and other locations were Jewish religious writings and biblical books. These largely fragmentary manuscripts, collectively known as the Dead Sea Scrolls, have transformed our understanding of Second Temple Judaism and have shed ancient light on on the text and interpretation of Hebrew Bible. Let's take a look at how the biblical scrolls from Qumran have impacted our understanding of the history of the biblical text. All right. Manuscripts. All right. Found at Qumran. Uh, Genesis. 20 or 21 manuscripts found, Exodus 20, Leviticus 15 or 17, Numbers 9 or 10, Deuteronomy 35. There's some manuscripts. Of the 200 scrolls from Qumran caves are portions of the Bible itself, representing every book of the Hebrew uh, except Esther. These manuscripts, however, are largely fragmentary, with some preserving rather substantial amounts of text and others preserving only very small amounts. The only virtually complete copy of a biblical book from Qumran is the great Isaiah scroll, which is dated to 125 BC, also making it the oldest known copy of the book of Isaiah. Not surprisingly, the Torah is well represented, uh, uh, well represented by approximately 100 manuscripts from Qumran. All right. Other biblical books attest by numerous copies include the book of Isaiah and the Psalter. 
These ancient biblical scrolls from Qumran represent our oldest biblical manuscripts and are extremely valuable, filling a major gap in the history of the biblical text and providing a window into the condition of the text during what is called the Second Temple Period. Now, prior to the discoveries of the Dead Sea Scrolls, the earliest available Hebrew manuscripts of the Old Testament were from the medieval period. In fact, the oldest complete copy of the Hebrew Bible, uh, which modern Hebrew and English Bibles are based on, is the Leningrad Codex, dated A.D. 1008. This is an excellent representative of the medieval Masoretic text tradition, a tradition in which scribes known as Masorets meticulously copied the circuit text of scripture that had been handed down for centuries. However, none of the earliest copies of biblical books from the Second Temple period were known to have survived. That is until the discoveries of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Now, please note that I don't refer to the Masoretic text as an attempt by unregenerate Jews to recreate the Hebrew. Like, they don't go into any of that. I'm just, and I'm just, all I'm saying is, listen to me, as I just want you to see immediately what do we find. I have an email claiming one thing, an article not even mentioning that claim. This, this is the way the world of Christianity, this is the way, it, no, there's just never, ever any agreement on anything, and it's maddening. But I want you to just do your own research, right? So, so just, but here's what I want you to hear. The biblical scrolls from Qumran, Qumran dated 250 BC to 8068, take the dating of available biblical manuscripts back a thousand years or more. Remarkably, many of these ancient scrolls closely match the medieval Masoretic text tradition, which modern Hebrew and English Bibles are based upon, confirming the biblical text has been faithfully preserved for all these centuries. For example, 4Q Gen is a rare and significant Genesis manuscript dating to the first century AD and preserving most of the creation account. This manuscript is virtually identical to the medieval Masoretic text, demonstrating the faithful scribal transmission of the text over the centuries. In other words, when we read the text of Genesis creation account today, which is based on the Masoretic text, we are reading the same text that people were reading 2,000 years ago during the second temple period. And then they have a picture of, uh, this is... Uh, Dead Sea Scroll number 109, 4Q109, also known um, as basically Ecclesiastes, found in a, a Qumran cave, Qumran cave, and uh, I'm, I'm looking at a picture of it right there. Uh, the scrolls also shed light on the ancient Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible known as the Septuagint, which differs at times from the Masoretic text. Most differences between the two are minor, such as as the addition or change of an individual word. Such differences rarely change the meaning of the text in question. However, there's also large-scale differences, such as additions or omissions of whole sections of text, and in some cases, recording of entire sections of text within a book, such as Jeremiah. Notably, the New Testament often quotes the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, uh, but is the Septuagint a reliable translation? 
Some of the biblical scholars from the Qumran reveal the existence of a Hebrew-based text for readings found in the Greek translation, suggesting the Septuagint is a faithful translation of a Hebrew text that existed during that time. For example, two Jeremiah manuscripts, 4QJER and 4Q... Okay, I'm sorry. 4QJERB and 4QJERD attest to Hebrew text tradition underlying the Greek version of Jeremiah. A shorter text with some sections of text arranged and ordered different from the Masoretic text. Simply put, the variant readings attest in the biblical scrolls from Qumran indicate that the Septuagint translation, translators carefully worked from a Hebrew text tradition that differed from the Masoretic text. All right, so now we've got the Septuagint, we've got the Masoretic text, we got the possibly the Septuagint borrowing from another uh, Hebrew manuscript, okay? But please note the Dead Sea Scrolls very much show the accuracy of the Masoretic text. So you can't say the Masoretic text is completely wrong when the de- unless you say the Dead Sea Scrolls were wrong. Right? So then, see, you see, you just the more you dig into this, the more you're going to get into lots of different uh, issues. A few of these ancient manuscripts even reflect another Hebrew text known as the Samaritan Pentateuch, which is a, which is a deliberate revision or recension of the earlier Hebrew text tradition attested at Qumran and preserved in the later Masoretic text. This alternate Hebrew text uh, edition of the Torah often expands certain texts by inserting parallel material from other passages in the Torah and even includes a few sectarian editions. Editions made by splinter groups such such as a command to worship at Mount uh, Gerizim as reflected in Jesus' discourse with the Samaritan woman in John 4. Before the discoveries of the Dead Sea Scrolls, we possessed only relatively late copies of the, what's it called again, the Samaritan Pentateuch. Thus, the Qumran scrolls provided a unique glimpse into the condition of this textual witness in antiquity. For example, 4Q uh, Paleo, uh, basically Exodus M, is a relatively well-preserved Exodus manuscript written in the Old or Paleo-Hebrew script and is dated to the first century B.C., This manuscript is closely related to the Samaritan Pentateuch, including textual expansions, but it lacks the sectarian readings that were added due to certain beliefs of the Samaritan community. This suggests that the sectarian readings of the Samaritans may have been a later alteration to an an expansionistic text, edition of the Torah that was already known in antiquity and apparently used by other communities." The Dead Sea Scrolls preserve by far our oldest copies of biblical manuscripts. The text tradition preserved in the medieval Masoretic text is well attested in these ancient biblical manuscripts from Qumran. Demonstrate Qumran demonstrating quite forcefully the faithful transmission of the text over the centuries. But these scrolls also attest to a variety of text traditions that existed during the second temple period. In other words, the text tradition preserved in the Masoretic text existed alongside other text traditions at Qumran. While the biblical scrolls at Qumran do not confirm the reliability of the biblical text, I'm sorry, 
Uh, while the biblical text scrolls from Qumran do confirm the reliability of the biblical text, the other text traditions with their variant readings also present wonderful and exciting challenges as we seek to better understand the text of Scripture. All right? And that comes from Bible Study Magazine, where they did an entire write-up on the Dead Sea Scrolls, and that was written by... Um, I don't know the uh, the name of the author, uh, the, the author, but they go through a lot of the issues. That was in the January February issue of Bible Study Magazine, and I don't know uh, in 2022. In 2022, now immediately what you see is okay. So you have the Masoretic text, you have the Septuagint. The Dead Sea Scrolls seem to give credence or substantiate the Masoretic text because it's almost identical in certain cases, almost identical. However, the, the, uh, the, the Dead Sea Scrolls also seem to show that there's these other Hebrew manuscripts and Hebrew texts that maybe the Septuagint was using, which would account for some of the differences between it and the Masoretic text, right? Because they were using these other Hebrew text traditions. So here's what you have. You have the Masoretic. You have other Hebrew text traditions, right? Like the Samaritan Pentateuch. You have these others, right? And then you have the Septuagint, which is a Greek translation of these Hebrew manuscripts, right? Now, the Septuagint possibly is borrowing from these other Hebrew uh, he Hebrew text traditions. We'll call them that, right? These other textual manuscripts, possibly borrowing from that. So there's going to be a discrepancy between the two. Now, by all means, you want to check the Septuagint, feel free to do so. But most of our Bibles are based off the Masoretic tr text tradition, not the Septuagint. Now, if you want everyone in your church to have not only a copy of the Masoretic, but also a copy of the Septuagint uh, translation, and then compare and compare and compare. I guess you could do that every single time you get ready to preach. You can say, well, the Septuagint says it this way. The Masoretic said it's this way. And then who gets to decide which one is right? Because the Dead Sea Scrolls seem to clearly confirm at least Isaiah, parts of Genesis, clearly the Masoretic tradition. So I just want you to look up articles about the, the Masoretic text, the Septuagint, and is the Masoretic some grand conspiracy by unregenerate Jews, or we have lots of manuscripts that come from different traditions, and that's the never-ending work of Bible scholars and textual critics looking at all the manuscripts and trying to understand the variants the different man, that's always, that's always the big issue, right? Textual variants, textual variants amongst the Greek man. Look, the same issues in the New Testament. You got Greek manuscripts from here, Greek manuscripts from here. The more manuscripts we find, the more variants arise. And then you have to look at those variants and try to figure out what was, what is most likely closest to the original reading. They have different uh, methods that they utilize and they go through it. Um, good question. Uh, all right. Someone just asked me a question. I, I don't want to give an answer. Hang, I'm just going to do one quick search. Someone in the text just asked a question. I think depending on which Catholic Bible you're using, because there's different kinds of Catholic Bibles, but hang on. 
Give me one second. I'm looking. Let me see here. Um, okay, I'm looking at a, a Catholic website. Okay. Um, okay, just, just something from a Catholic website here. Um, the historical importance of the Septuagint. Uh, the importance of the Septuagint version is shown by the following considerations. The Septuagint is the most ancient translation of the Old Testament and consequently is invaluable to critics for uh, understanding and correcting the Hebrew text. Uh, the latter, such as come down to us, being the text established by the Masoretes and the 6th century AD, many textual corruptions, additions, omissions, or, or trans, transpositions must have crept into the Hebrew text between the 3rd and 2nd century BC and the 6th and 7th century of our era. Uh, and they go on the Septuagint version accepted by accepted by the first by the Alexandrian Jews and afterwards by all the Greek speaking uh, countries helped to spread among the Gentiles the idea and the ex, uh, expectation of the Messiah and to introduce into Greek the theological terminology and concepts that made it more suitable instrument for the propagation of the gospel of Christ. The Jews made use of it long before the Christian era, and in the time of Christ was recognized as a legitimate text, and was employed in Palestine even by the rabbis. The apostles and evangelists utilized it also and borrowed Old Testament citations from it, especially in regards to the prophets. The fathers and the other ecclesiastical writers of the early church drew upon it, either directly, as in the case of the Greek fathers, or indirectly, like the Latin fathers. All right. Um, then they go through the... Okay, here. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to see here. I'm looking. Yeah, they don't... That, I, I cannot dogmatically say we'd have to look at each one... Um, we would have to, to to we'd have to look at each uh, edition of a Catholic Bible and see which one if they did. I think they they I, I I cannot be dogmatic. I cannot be dogmatic. This is something I've studied in the past. It's been a long time since I've looked into this. Um, it would be it'd be great if it was, and you could just buy a Catholic Bible and go. Well, here's and basically an English translation of the Septuagint. It would be simple. Um, I, I was more thinking a Greek Orthodox Bible would probably use the Septuagint more than the, uh, the Masoretic text. That's what I was thinking before Catholics. I was thinking of Greek Orthodox, right? That would make sense, right? It would make more sense to me. So, um, but yeah, the, you can you can find a Septuagint online, easy. But before we get into drawing the contrast between, but basically most commentaries, there's the one thing that this is the one thing that why I don't get too worried about a lot of these. If you're doing any study on a text, any commentary will basic will typically point out, here's how it's rendered in the Septuagint, right? They'll have the LXX, right? The, uh, the Roman numerals, right? They'll have the, the Roman numeral there showing, okay, here's the Septuagint. This is how it's translated in the Septuagint, sometimes in your study Bible. The, and so you usually will have the Septuagint translation mentioned if there is a major a major discrepancy or difference. In some cases, maybe you will not. But the, but what I want you to do for this miniature research project is I just want you to do some reading on some articles about the Masoretic text versus the Septuagint.
That's all, that's why that's what I want you to do. And again, the Dead Sea Scrolls seem to bring seem to add a sense of we should be able to trust the Masoretic text because the uh, Dead Sea Scrolls, in many cases, clearly are almost verbatim, word for word, as found in the Masoretic text, Isaiah and parts of Genesis. Now, you can't just ignore that. You can't just say, well, that doesn't matter. Well, no, that means, okay, well, maybe the Masoretic text is not the, the, the world's worst. You may want to argue the Septuagint is superior. You may want to, like in that Catholic article, they're like, well, the Septuagint was used for a long time to correct the Masoretic text. Okay, well, then that's fine. You can say that. I just, I'm not down for like wholesale, like, it's the creation of unregenerate. Like, I, well, come on now. I, let's just try to keep it level-headed and go, we've got all of these manuscripts. And even that one article brought up the other Hebrew text traditions. And then make the argument that the Septuagint was borrowing from a Hebrew text tradition. Well, which Hebrew text tradition was the Septuagint borrowing from? And if the Dead Sea Scrolls gave confirmation to the Masoretic text, like I see you, you get into the, like all of these questions. Now, by all means, you can chase all of this and you can pursue it and go, okay, wait a minute. So Septuagint, Masoretic, you can, you can go, 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 go. And it, and that's fun and it's interesting and you can dedicate a good portion of your life to that. I'm not in any way diminishing that. All I'm saying is that at some point you're not focusing on what, what I wanted is to study Jeremiah and see what we can learn to grow spiritually. But we're going we're gonna to set us, we're set aside just a little bit of time for a little bit of research project, a little miniature research project. And I'm not trying to give you any definitive answers myself. I, I know you may think, well, no, it sounds like you're being definitive. No, I'm telling you to look this up yourself. All right. Sometimes a good Bible dictionary will probably have something about an, uh, an, uh, an entry for the Septuagint and for the Masoretic text. You can, I mean, look, if you'll just do a search online, You'll just do a search online. Look how easy. I mean, look, I, I'm just going to go. If I just put Masoretic text. Versus the Septuagint. All right. Okay. Here we go. Like the first thing that shows up literary conclusions. The key difference between the narratives of the Septuagint and the Masoretic text is to be found in the role the narrator plays. The Masoretic text narrator is more covert where uh, his Septuagint counterpart tends to be more overt. Now they go through an entire thing about the literal, the literary critical comparison of the Masoretic text and the Septuagint. All right. Then what is the difference between the Septuagint and the Masoretic text? Here's another article. All right. Deep dive. All right. Septuagint is the first translated version of the Hebrew Bible that was done for Greeks about, about by 70 Jewish, uh, the, by 70 Jewish that were invited from different tribes of Israel. You're probably familiar with the abbreviation of the Septuagint. And if you're looking at it in, from English, LXX, you'll see that all the time in commentaries, right? The number of books that were translated into this language was five. Masoretic text is the original Hebrew that was written by rabbis after the original. Hebrew was, lo- uh, Hebrew was lost. It also contains punctuation and critical notes, all right? The difference between translated and original versions is that the LXX is more, has more authenticity as it was translated a thousand years before the Masoretic text. It is still not 
it's still not a reliable source as it has some additions. However, the Jewish scholars rejected the LXX on many grounds, right? So why did Jewish scholars reject the Septuagint, right? The mainstream Jewish didn't like the fact that Jesus himself quoted uh, his manuscript, making it more reliable source for Christians, okay? Well, that could be, you know, a reason why. Uh, today's Septuagint isn't original and contains some corrupt, corrupted information. According to the original uh, Septuagint, Jesus is Messiah. Later, when Jewish, Jewish uh, seemed dissatisfied with this fact, they tried to corrupt the Septuagint in an attempt to undermine the original manuscript. So see, some now argue that the, what we have of the Septuagint today is a corrupted version of the original. See, so like you, you, the minute you dig into this, you're just going to find so many different points of view. Um, modern Septuagint doesn't contain complete verses of the book of Daniel. If you want to compare both, it's only possible if you get the English copy of both manuscripts. All right? And then you get into, and then this goes, I mean, this goes long. There's long. I mean, that was just the first article I pulled up. That's the first article. All right? Um, I mean, yeah. I mean, I, I I could just sit here and read all day for you. I could read here all day. Okay. Now we got a possible conspiracy theory here. We have textual analysis here. All right. Uh, okay. Okay, now this is a site that's, I guess, criticizing whatever's being claimed here about the Septuagint. They say, uh, we implore the uh, Septuagint community to rise to a higher standard of scholarship. As all par uh, parties to this debate acknowledge, the bi biblical text is not a trivial thing to monkey around with. We know that deliberate changes were made somewhere in history, probably in the century or two leading up to the birth of Christ. We all want to get to the bottom of it. Personally, we should love an extra couple of centuries post-flood to fit more archaeological evidence before Abraham. Okay, they go in. So they are dealing with some major controversy, uh, dealing with uh, oh, the Masoretic text of Genesis 5 and 11 is still the most reliable. This one is making ar an argument that the Masoretic text of Genesis 5 and 11 is more reliable than the Septuagint. So, I mean, like you, you're, you, like you just keep, uh, you just keep going through this and you're just going to find article after article. All right. It says, okay, here we go. Um, Protestants such as myself use the Masoretic text for the translation of our Bibles. However, the Eastern Orthodox churches use the Septuagint, a Greek translation. Uh, all right. Uh, then they get the different uh, codices that we get, the Vaticanus, Sinaiticus, and Alexandrius. Uh, okay. All right. Uh so it's the fact that 99% of all Protestants use a translation of the Bible and certainly do not read either Hebrew, Masoretic, or Greek, Septuagint. The same is true of Eastern Orthodox Christians. Virtually all of us use translations. As far as I know, our Orthodox Christians, friends who read the Bible, use more or less the same translations as we do. My sister is an Orthodox nun. I believe she uses a standard uh, English translation, not one done by the Orthodox Church. So for virtually all Protestant and Orthodox believers, they read neither the Masoretic nor the Septuagint. They use translations by, re by reputable scholars, and all scholars that I know uh, of use both the Masoretic and Septuagint texts in an attempt at arriving at the best English translations. That brings up a whole different issue, right? Like none of us are re actually reading the Masoretic or the Septuagint, 
We're reading English translations, okay? So if I pick up my Bible, my my Bible, it may be based off the Masoretic, but did the scholars also reference the Septuagint? Like you got to figure out when whenever you look at a Bible, you don't know what did the translators do. Did they just were they only looking at the Masoretic or were they also looking at the Septuagint? Were they using a combined both to do the translation? Then you have to go learn about the translation that you're using. So that just raises a whole different question. So I'm just, I'm just saying, that, like, that's just a few minutes. That's just a few minutes into it. So I got some yelling at the Septuagint only kind of crowd. I got an email saying, no, 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 the Masoretic text is unreliable. Everyone has their theory. And, and what this all leads to is just widespread confusion, discouragement, disillusionment. And people are like, you know what? I didn't forget it. I, I, if I can't even understand, like, if I don't even know if what I'm reading is accurate, it just leads to doubt. I mean, come on, like how many Christians are going to be like, oh no, wait, 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 wait. I know you have your Bible, but you need a copy of the Septuagint. And as you read your Bible, because your Bible is probably based on the Masoretic text, or you need a straight English translation, since you can't read Hebrew or Greek, you need a straight English translation based on the Masoretic text alone, and a straight English translation based on the Septuagint alone. And then for every verse you read in the Bible, you've got to compare the two. And then you get to decide, well, which one is more accurate? Well, some are going to argue the Septuagint is more uh, accurate. Some are going to say, no, no, the Masoretic text, because it was confirmed by things in the dead. You see, then it's like, who are you going to rely on to know which one is more accurate? Same thing when you get to the New Testament. You look at the, the, the uh, the Greek manuscripts and you have variants. Are you going to go look at every, a translation based off every Greek manuscript to find every textual variant? Now, in many cases, commentaries will mention these things. They will, they will bring these things out. And then you're left going, well, wait a minute. It reads this. In some cases, you don't even know how many different variants there are unless you're comparing all the Greek manuscripts. So I just wanted to bring this to everyone's attention. So here is your assignment. Just dig in and just start reading some articles about the Masoretic text, its history, there, there, um, the Septuagint. Also do some things about, and you may want to compare the, the, um, you may want to do something like this for your Google search. Uh, Dead Sea Scrolls and the Masoretic text and the Septuagint. And see how it impacts any of that. Just do, just do a little reading on your own. And, and, and please, uh, if you find things that are interesting, like if you want to send me like your homework, because I like people, you know, to, to stay in, in touch, you can just email me newsif at yahoo.com and just say, well, the majority of the articles said the Masoretic over the Septuagint, or the majority said Septuagint over the Masoretic, and the Dead Sea Scrolls seem to confirm the Septuagint or the Masoretic. There you go. And that's all I really want you to do. I just want you to see it for yourself. I, I'm not telling you which way to think. I'm not, I am not telling you which way to go here. I am not telling you which way to go. I am not making any dogmatic assertions here. I just want you as the individual to be aware. Wait a minute. So not only do I got, okay, I could, first I got to pick the English translation. Once I pick the English translation, then I got to realize that I may be reading an English t- translation that's based off the Masoretic or the Septuagint. And now I'm being told that only one of those is right because the other one could be wrong. So now I got to get a, uh, yeah, okay. Yeah. At some point, can, don't you want to just be able to pick up a Bible and read it and go, can I trust what I have here in my hands? 
Or are we going to literally go to basically a way of thinking? Look, I'll never forget this at Grace University. And I'll end with this. Omaha, Nebraska. Genesis class. The professor kept saying, you know, if you, if you read it in the Hebrew, if you read it in the Hebrew, basically you like, you can't, you can't understand Genesis unless you know Hebrew. Basically that was his argument. And I will never forget this. So here's a young guy training to go into ministry, wants to go into ministry. And he basically raised his hands like, well, since I don't know Hebrew yet and I don't know Greek yet, what am I supposed to do? And the guy basically, the, the professor was like, well, don't preach and don't teach until you know Hebrew and Greek enough that you can read the Hebrew and Greek because you you can't understand it. You can't teach it. You can't interpret it unless you can read Hebrew and Greek. Now, if that is true, well, then one, nobody sitting in the pew has any right to interpret the Bible unless they can read Hebrew or Greek. So do we tell all Christians, you can't interpret the Bible until you can read Hebrew and Greek. Now, I've heard that kind of mindset in seminary, multiple, almost that kind of mentality. Unless you can read Hebrew and Greek, you, you can't preach or teach the Bible. So we, you can't really understand it in English. So you let me know what you think. Newsif at yahoo.com. Newsif at yahoo.com. I wanted to at least bring this to everyone's attention. Again, to the person who emailed me, thank you very, very, very much. If I sound like I'm arguing against your position, I apologize because I'm not really arguing for or against. I don't like the dogmatic assertion so much. I will be honest with that because, again, five seconds I can find articles that don't give your dogmatic assertion or your dogmatic assertion of the way things are. I've got others going, well, we got the Masoretic, we got the Septuagint, and we got the possibly these others. And isn't it wonderful? We can compare them all. They don't see it as, oh, no, 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 no. Stay away from this. Stay away. No, the more text, look, the more text, the better. The only problem is with the more text, the more variations will be discovered. You just have to realize that. If you fi- if we find 50 more manuscripts in the next 10 years, that's going to only add to, well, wait a minute. Now, in, in the Dead Sea Scrolls, though, it seems at least in Isaiah in certain parts, it's almost verbatim for the Masoretic text. Well, it doesn't, does that, does that, does, is that a good thing or a bad thing? Or do we say the Dead Sea Scrolls are corrupted and they were, and the Dead Sea Scrolls are written by unregenerate Jews who were trying to, like, like, where, like, at some point you just have to stop and go, I, I, to me, with a lot of these issues, is at some point you're just going to have to. We want to learn as much as we can, and at some point you just have to accept certain things by faith. You just have to, or 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 just going to end up just being like, well, you know what? Forget it, because obviously nobody can understand this. Or you just go back to the Roman Catholic Church and say, I need, I need a magisterial authority. I need, I need, I need a, I need. People who spend their life trying to figure this out and they'll tell me what it means because obviously I can't figure out what it means. All right. Newsif at yahoo.com. Newsif at yahoo.com. There is your research project. Don't make it too much, but I want you to be aware of this problem. So whenever you're like, wait, I didn't know there was a controversy between the Masoretic and the Septuagint. But it is true that a good portion of the New Testament cites the Septuagint. That seems to be accurate and factual. So anytime, so whenever, that's always something to ask. When you ever, whenever you see a New Testament citation of an Old Testament scripture, you should ask yourself, 
Are they siding from the Septuagint? That, that's good to know. It is good to know. It is good to know. All right. Thanks for listening. Everyone have a great night. God bless.